if uh, I can climb into my grave one day knowing that I've proven it's rational to be moral and helped orient trillions of dollars towards purpose-driven businesses that end poverty on a massive scale, I can feel it was a life well lived. That's Andrew Cooper, the CEO of impact investment firm LeapFrog. I'm your host, Patrick McGinnis, and this is FOMO Sapiens, part of the HBR Presents Network. Allow me to introduce myself. I'm the guy who invented the term FOMO. That's short for fear of missing out. Today, FOMO is an epidemic and is chasing us so much that it sort of feels like we're evolving into a new species. But FOMO doesn't have to take over your life. You can find the power to choose what you actually want and the courage to miss out on the rest. I'll show you how right here on FOMO Sapiens. Welcome to FOMO Sapiens, the show where I interview people who are changing the world and ask them how they choose from among the many opportunities and options in their busy lives. At this very moment, the business community is having an important and frankly overdue discussion. In the boardrooms of New York, San Francisco, Nairobi, and Seoul, corporations are rethinking their purpose and asking whether profit should remain their one sole overarching objective. More and more, the answer is no. In fact, the Business Roundtable, which is chaired by J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon, has just adopted a new statement on the purpose of a corporation, which asks CEOs to commit to leading their companies for the benefit of all stakeholders. While this concept is new to some, Dr. Andrew Cooper has been leading the charge on a new type of capitalism for over a decade. He's the founder and CEO of LeapFrog Investments, a private equity firm that invests in purpose-driven businesses across Latin America, Africa, and emerging Asia. With over $1.5 billion in management, the firm has invested in nearly 30 companies. In our discussion, Andrew will explain how you can invest with purpose without sacrificing profit, and he will explain why he chose a path that so many doubted could be successful, and how that business model is quietly changing capitalism across the globe. Dr. Andrew Cooper, welcome to FOMO Sapiens. Great to be here. You are the founder and CEO of a private equity firm with a novel approach that is set it apart from other players in your space. In fact, in 2017, Fortune ranked your firm, LeapFrog Investments, one of the top five companies to change the world, alongside Apple and Novartis. What's the big idea here, and why are you listed alongside such illustrious companies? So I launched LeapFrog in January 2007 when the iPhone was launched. And I realized that there were going to be 4 billion people joining the grid who had historically not been on the grid because of mobile telephony. And that those 4 billion people were generally low income and excluded and were going to need access to essential services. And I saw that as the world's biggest social opportunity to change their lives, but also business opportunity because the number of customers in the world had doubled. So, we set out to invest in and build businesses that would serve those billions of rising consumers in Africa and Asia especially. And we said this crazy thing. We said we were going to reach 25 million low-income people with essential services within 10 years, and we were going to get top-tier private equity returns. So what we called profit with purpose. And it's just gone 10 years. Uh, So you can now hold me accountable for what we were able to achieve. LeapFrog's companies now reach 188 million people 
155 million of those people are low-income people, meaning they live on less than $10 a day per person in the household. And we've been able to achieve strong enough returns that we've raised four different fund vehicles and now manage close to $2 billion. So I think you can say that the possibility of profit with purpose that was invented on that day hasn't just become a reality, it's become a reality that has a very powerful demonstration effect and has helped launch the field now known as impact investing. Andrew, you're based in Australia, but you're traveling frequently across the world. You have teams based in the markets in which you operate, who invest in local entrepreneurs, and then you have your own investors in the fund who are located across the globe. How does it all work? Who does what and where and what kinds of businesses do you back? So we raise capital mostly from developed markets, spending a lot of time in the likes of New York or London or Berlin or Singapore, raising that capital. And then we make it flow through into businesses that are in fast emerging countries. So countries like India, Indonesia, Thailand, Nigeria, Kenya, Ghana. And we typically have teams on the ground in those countries finding great businesses to invest in. And so those teams will find a really strong business. They'll put it through our very rigorous investment process and investment committee. And we'll decide to put capital into one of those businesses like a pensions company or a insurance company or a healthcare business. And we put that capital in and then they use that capital to grow the business. And how do you grow the business? Well, you serve ever more people with ever more products. So you might take your company from serving 100,000 people with five different products to serving 10 million people with 10 different products, which some of our companies have actually done. And those companies then are really focused on serving customers with tools or products or services those customers can use. So in the end, it's the customers who are changing their own lives. And I love that because part of the problem with development, international development historically, is that people arrive and kind of munificently give stuff to others who they regard as poor. And who's the agent in that situation? It's the rich giver. What I like about our approach is that the agent in the situation is that emerging customer, that low-income person who's taking the tool that they're choosing to buy from you at very low cost and using that tool to change their own lives. They are the agents of their own destiny. And then they're being served by a company that's generally run by a local management team, people who are from that market who have built an incredible business and are doing things right in that market. So they're changing their own society. And then the leapfrog team is predominantly from those markets. So we're actually helping our societies to transform countries that we're from. And ultimately, investors and our community are getting to participate in that story, which is a from the ground up, changing your own lives story 
from within. It's not something that's a top-down solution brought from thousands of miles away. And it's powerful because it's not charity per se. This is about directing capital into businesses that are sustainable and generating return that creates an incentive for people to continue investing going forward. And that creates a virtuous cycle that is clearly worked out because more and more capital is entering the space and you are no longer alone as the only player in the market. Absolutely. And one thing that financial markets have demonstrated time and time again is that they can function very strongly via greed. So it's it's pretty important that you generate outsized returns by doing good so that people start investing in healthcare companies that are doing the right thing rather than extractive oil wells businesses or similar or tobacco or the like because that way people can realize Socrates' motto in reality, and his motto was, it's rational to be moral. If uh, I can climb into my grave one day, knowing that I've proven it's rational to be moral and helped orient trillions of dollars towards purpose-driven businesses that end poverty on a massive scale, I can feel it was a life well lived. So you're a private equity investor and your approach to deals is a little different than many of the other people in the space, or actually a lot different. For example, oftentimes private equity is perceived as an industry that looks for efficiency and drives returns by cutting costs or reducing the size of the workforce. A lot of times also the returns come from piling on debt and obviously that can be risky and lead to bankruptcies. And this has been one of the reasons why the asset class has attracted so much negative attention from politicians in places like the United States. You're doing something completely different unpack that. How is your approach different? Yeah, so I always hear the various presidential uh, contenders saying that we need a different kind of capitalism. And I feel like putting up my hand and saying, over here, this is, uh, this is what it looks like, right? Because we invest in companies that directly serve people's essential needs uh, in quality ways and make more money as a result. So for example, I've just returned from Africa, from Kenya, Ghana, and Nigeria. And for instance, in Kenya, we own what is now the largest pharmacy chain in the country. So if you walk into a pharmacy or average pharmacy in Kenya, about a third of the medication is fake or placebo or misprescribed. That means even if you get your kid correctly diagnosed, they've still got a one-third chance of getting sicker. So what we've done with Good Life is have a perfect supply chain, as good as it can get, similar to Boots or CVS or Walgreens. And it serves people who walk in off the street uh, with a quality service where you have well-trained pharmacists, the right medication dispensed, and now the kid gets better. Now, the thing is, when we invested, there were just a few hundred thousand people reached and there were 19 stores. There are now 60 stores uh, two years later, and those stores serve millions of people. In fact, it's the largest healthcare provider in East Africa now. And we've turned those stores into health hubs. So they've gone from just providing medications or what you need out of the pharmacy to providing diagnostics, payments, uh, insurance, all sorts of other things out of these health hubs where you actually get a better experience in uh, a little pharmacy miles from Nairobi than you do in New York or Sydney because you can walk through the door, you can sit down in front of a telemedicine counter, get a, a doctor to diagnose you, walk over to the pharmacist who can dispense the medication and the insurer pays. 
At this point, I know a lot of people are celebrating you. You've got great returns and you generate fantastic press and it's a good story. But I imagine that back when you were starting out, that was not the case and there were a lot of skeptics. What was it like back in those early days and what gave you the conviction to know that you were the right person to start this business? Well, when we started leapfrog there was a wall of skepticism and i can say probably my wife and my mother and my sister were the only believers Uh, but it was a truth whose time had come this idea of profit with purpose i think is something that millions of people hunger for not meaningless Uh, capitalism, and at the same time, the ability to build assets for your family by doing something good in the world. So putting these things together really resonated for a number of amazing people. And we talk about LeapFrog as a magnet for great people. And just the first example was that I met one of the most junior people at the Clinton Global Initiative. And she got so excited about it and introduced me to the next person and the next person. And very soon to launch Leapfrog, when we had zero dollars, I was on the stage with President Clinton uh, announcing that we were launching this thing and announcing the kinds of targets you can see. And you can still view that video online. And once we launched, we found that we attracted such extraordinary people and investors. So early investors included the eBay founder, Pierre Omidyar. Uh, It included a whole bunch of institutions like JP Morgan came in early. uh, And we had a number of the development finance institutions come in. And suddenly there was a kind of a snowball rolling down this long, wet slope. And it picked up momentum and momentum. And initially we said we'd raise uh, $100 million. Of course, we've raised more than 15 times that to date. And we found that all sorts of opportunities came to us out of nowhere, things we couldn't have come up with ourselves. So I often think of that as the opposite of FOMO. In other words, I wouldn't know what opportunities I have and I'm uh, missing uh, if I didn't have this incredible magnet that draws in uh, so many extraordinary people and ideas and potentials to my life. Why was I the guy? Well, I had a very peculiar childhood. Uh, My parents met and then got married in the summer of 69 and were uh, hippie characters at the time who uh, moved out to a farm and lived in the long grass in a tent initially uh, and then slowly built this big rambling farmhouse. And they had a very different view of the world. So they were extremely anti-apartheid. And uh, this was in uh, depths of apartheid South Africa and sent me to a school called Woodmead, which was in fact the only unsegregated school under apartheid at the time. So including one of the Mandela kids, but it was a mixed race school at a time where you would sometimes have apartheid army vehicles parked outside and would feel very threatened. Imagine, you know, Georgia in the 50s in a a mixed race school. So I had a sense that social justice really is a very personal pursuit. It rarely matters. And eventually I was standing on the union building lawns in Pretoria the day Nelson Mandela was inaugurated. And I remember him, I were 50,000 of us on on the lawns. And I remember him coming after being inaugurated to stand and wave to everybody. And there was suddenly this giant boom And of course, almost everyone there had been involved in the anti-apartheid struggle and so thought this was under it. We were all under attack and hit the ground. And then 
we looked up and there were six jets trailing the colors of the new South African flag. It was a sonic boom, saluting Nelson Mandela as president. And at that moment, people started saying, those are our jets. And we had this real sense of a group of individuals having persevered with a very selfless leader to achieve something that had been thought to be unimaginable. And I think a lot of us on that day committed ourselves to doing something that fundamentally changed the world at real scale. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, or delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you improve efficiency by bringing all major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. And with rising prices everywhere you look, you got to do the math and save money. Good news, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head over to NetSuite.com slash FOMO. That's NetSuite.com slash FOMO. NetSuite.com slash FOMO. When you started out, there were very few people in the impact investment space. Nowadays, it's a crowded market, lots of new players getting into the game. How has impact investing evolved over the past decade as more people enter the space? And how do you see it evolving going forward? When I started LeapFrog, there was deep skepticism about whether you could do this commercially and at scale. Uh, pretty much everything out there was nonprofit or subpar returns. And a lot of the people that now proclaim how impact investing is a great investment strategy for a big private equity firm uh, were deeply skeptical of this thing that sounded peculiar and soft and social. So the first thing to do is to really show people that you can make more money by doing good <laughs> as well as do more good by making money. And I knew that you could have that debate endlessly or you could just go out and prove it. So by finding these incredible companies, by backing them, we were essentially able to make people in the capital markets jealous. They felt, wow, this is a place where you can get significant returns. Um, and just to give you a sense, you know, in, in companies in the US or Europe, you might say, wow, we're getting like 5% growth against a sort of market growth of about 2%. We are incredible. We're really sailing along here. Well, leapfrog companies, we did a study across the past 10 years, on average, a leapfrog company grows at 35% a year. So once we were able to demonstrate this, you had many of the big players in the world, and really it's happened over the last two, three years, start piling in. The IFC and the Global Impact Investing Network just came out with uh, some numbers where they said basically right now about $500 billion versus $8 billion when I started was oriented towards impact investments. And their view is that it's going to go from $500 billion to $26 trillion. Of course, we're happy to be at the front of the wave there and to be able to ride that massive wave of, of capital that's coming. But 
the big concern is, are people going to have the same integrity and adopt the same standards that LeapFrog and other field-leading pioneers have adopted? And I've been really anxious about this. So what we did two years ago, the IFC, uh, which is the private sector arm of the World Bank, their CEO, and I sat down and said, we really should have standards for this field. And along with 60 other asset managers, we eventually launched uh, something called the operating principles for impact investing, which are nine principles that any impact investor has to adopt or fulfill in order to qualify as an impact investor. And it's things like intention. You have to quantify your planned impact up front and things like independent verification afterwards. Did you actually get the impact that you said you were going to get according to someone else, not just according to your own protestations? And we really think these standards are incredibly important for the field in terms of keeping people honest. And I'm hoping that this kind of field building that we have done with some other pioneers will really orient this capital in the right direction because 26 trillion is a lot of money. It's a lot of companies that can really change the world. And our original vision and mission was to open the gates of the capital markets to purpose-driven businesses. So that's what we're really doing but we want to make sure that it's done in the right way and that those 4 billion people really are served with quality, affordable services. So this is a feel-good story, and as it attracts interest, big institutions that have in the past maybe invested in the dirtier companies and industries where you'd say that they aren't doing anything particularly good for society, all of a sudden they are entering the market, and some of them, it may look like they're doing it to rebrand themselves. And while that could be a good thing, because of course we should support companies that want to do things responsibly and thoughtfully, it also begs the question, how much of this is just marketing? So I'm wondering, when you truly act as an impact investor and you can't just go out and put your money into anything, what are you missing out on? What can't you do that you might have done otherwise? So the original answer of the opponents of the likes of LeapFrog was you're giving up on returns. And that's just proved to be false. There are plenty of studies and LeapFrog is a standing example that you can actually get outsized returns by doing the right thing. What are you giving up on? Well, there's a universe of investments that you're giving up on. You're probably not going to invest in certain parts of extractive industries, <laughs> um, as you say, or, or other areas, tobacco, arms. But you're also not going to invest in stuff that's just average and has no real impact on people's lives. Mission-driven businesses such as yours seem to be gaining greater traction as people start to realize that they don't necessarily have to trade off impact with profit. In fact, you can do well and do good at the same time. What's your advice to an entrepreneur who wants to pursue that path? Gandhi once said, if you are a bearer of a truth, you can bring down empires. So you need to really be a deep believer in your dream and in your mission. And I would say it is much easier if that is a big dream and also if that is a compassionate dream. In other words, it's oriented towards helping others. That's because when you wake up in the morning, it's going to be more motivating to have a big dream. And also, if you're a bit down on yourself, it's okay, because objectively helping those others is still a big deal that can be very motivating. Andrew, your work takes you all over the world. You're hitting multiple time zones and countries every week or month, and you're filling up your frequent flyer account. How do you manage a career in a life like that without going completely crazy? 
Well, I feel like I've set up my life for maximal FOMO. So I'm not sure I'm the right guy (laughs) to share this lesson. But what I have learned is that it's not about there being balance on a daily basis. Obviously, if I'm spending the day in India, I'm going to pack the day with lots of meetings and I might get to speak to my kids, but I don't get to see them that day. But when I'm here, I'm incredibly present. So it's not about balance on a daily basis. It's about balance seen over a month or a quarter or a year. And you must realize that you've chosen these big things in life, these fundamental life projects like family and work and friends. And so you are going to be torn between these things on a daily basis. And you must just try and abstract yourself, view it from the 60,000 foot perspective and say, am I getting the right balance and enough of these things over a month or a quarter or a year? And then if you're not, adjust. So, Andrew, you do a lot of good in the world, but you have also built a business that manages over $1.5 billion of capital. So you brought these two elements together with great success. This is the show about finding the power to choose what you actually want and the courage to miss out on the rest. So what is your advice to listeners? Well, I, I never trained in finance. I trained in philosophy. So I probably have a bit more to say on this one. And I, I guess... I think there are two philosophical traditions. There's kind of the Plato tradition where people give you these general principles that you try and instantiate. And there's the Aristotle tradition where you look to the person of practical wisdom and you say, what do they do? What would they do? How should I go forward in the world? And more and more I've learned that the Aristotle tradition helps most. In other words, find people who you incredibly admire, make them into mentors, friends and dialogue partners and have great conversations with them. And you find that the the lessons of those relationships come through. I mean, I had two great supervisors of my PhD, um, one of the world's greatest living ethicists, uh, Honora O'Neill, and a Nobel Prize winner in economics, Amartya Sen. And I only realized how much they taught me you know, 10 and 20 years later, (laughs) as it unfolded, it wasn't that I understood all the general principles right at the beginning, but I had exposure to those people and conversations with those people that shaped how I thought about the world. And I think that's the great lesson of life. Surround yourself by people who inspire and enthuse you, have those great conversations, and then be open to progressively understanding them through the decades ahead. And as you build this firm and this team and, and this portfolio of investments, is there anything that you think you feel like you're missing out on? So we focus exclusively on what we call wealth and health. We think financial tools and healthcare are at the bottom of everything because if whatever else you need, you're going to need to pay for it. If you want to educate your kids, you're going to have to save for that. If you're not healthy, you can't do all the things that you need to do. Uh, Or a mother might get sick and have to pull her daughter out of school, right? So wealth and health are at the root of everything. And we've been zealously focused on that and getting to almost 200 million people who we've been able to help with that. And we now have a new goal, which is to reach a billion people with essential services and change their lives. But if you think about that, that leaves 3 billion low-income people untouched. It also doesn't touch those areas like energy, education, water and sanitation, 
other areas of social infrastructure that can fundamentally change people's lives. So when I look at that map of emerging Asia or Africa and I see at night and I see how much is dark, I would love to light that up. All right, Andrew, that's like a pretty good idea. Maybe somebody who's listening today will go out and pursue that opportunity and maybe you can even back them. Andrew, where can we find out more about you, about LeapFrog and the work you're doing? So our website is leapfroginvest.com. You can find me on LinkedIn, which I use a lot more than Twitter, at Andrew Cooper, Andrew K-U-P-E-R. Uh, also on Twitter, we're also Leapfrog Invest on Twitter. And essentially, we update all of that pretty regularly. We really like having a dialogue with folks. And as I say, a huge amount of our opportunity comes from engaging this broader community or passionate about profit with purpose and passionate about changing the world while building assets and building great businesses. Dr. Andrew Cooper, thanks for stopping by. Tudo bem, meus queridos fomos sapiens. Now that right there was Portuguese. And as you know, I love speaking foreign languages, but I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO Sapiens, you know I speak four languages, and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. FOMO. And now it's time for the FOMO moment of the show, which is when I talk about FOMO and its role in pop culture or tell you about something that's giving me FOMO. And today I want to talk about FOMO and your finances. Website couponing101.com conducted a survey of 3,500 Americans to find out how much they spend on things because of FOMO. And they found some pretty interesting things. 17% of people surveyed have taken out loans to help fund their FOMO. 35% of those surveyed say that when it comes to FOMO, they spend the most money on vacation. And then they broke it down by state and looked at how much money people are spending on purchases that are driven by FOMO. And guess who led the nation? Rhode Island, $13,000. That is a mind blower. Number two, New Jersey at just $7,500. So the difference between FOMO and Rhode Island and New Jersey is insane. Now, I took a look at my own home state of Maine, which I often contend has pretty low FOMO. And in fact, yes, it was near the bottom of the list with just $1,000. So Maine, nice job. And given your status as a low FOMO place, I think you should get in the car, drive a couple hours down to Rhode Island and give our friends down there a hand. FOMO. Big news. You can now pre-order my upcoming book, Fear of Missing Out, Practical Decision-Making in a World of Overwhelming Choice at patrickmcginnis.com slash FOMOSapiens. While you're there, make sure to download my free gift for you, the FOMO Sapiens Handbook, which is an exclusive guide to spotting and managing FOMO and even turning it into a force for good. And as always, if you have an idea for the FOMO moment of the show, you can reach me on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, or on email at letsconnect at patrickmcginnis.com. FOMO Sapiens is part of the HBR Presents Network. The show is produced by AW360 and recorded in New York City. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis. If you like today's show, please be sure to subscribe, rate it, and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me at patrickmcginnis.com. 
You can also take the official FOMO diagnostic at patrickmcginnis.com slash FOMO dash quiz to find out if you're a FOMO sapiens. 